Well, you've been sitting here, so you've heard. This morning we're having communion, and I'm pretty sure most people sitting here know what we're talking about. If, uh, if you don't, it's not hard to get up to speed. Sometimes it's very good to remind yourself of the basics. It was at a Passover supper the night before he died that Jesus instituted this ritual. And you'll remember, of course, the Passover is a Jewish feast that's celebrated once a year that celebrates their, uh, the Lord leading them out of slavery in Egypt. And uh, he institutes this ritual, this ceremony, that Christians then have set aside as central to Christian worship. It involved bread and it involved wine. And as Jesus described it at the Passover meal, these represented what was soon going to take place the very next, the very next day. He broke the bread and said, this represents his broken body. He took the cup of wine and said, this signified his blood that would be poured out. And it's pretty obvious if you read the story that the 12 men and whoever else was in the room with them at the time didn't get it. <laughs> they, they couldn't put it together. It was yet to happen. Afterwards, they could. This morning, of course, sitting here, we're not quite in the dark the way they were. Uh, the Bible told us not only the rest of the story, what happened and how it fit together, but now we know what it means. Jesus' death on the cross then, to us, we know, was not simply a surprise martyr's death, but a plan by God to save the human race from its alienation from God and the consequences of that. And uh, it doesn't take long to think, what are those consequences? But uh, there are consequences. We see them around the world in a broken world full of pain. And we are assured from the scriptures that uh, these have eternal consequences as well, these actions. This morning, by taking communion, you've, you've seen the imagery, we go to the cross. But that can become such a pious kind of slogan, right? And it's, uh, what does it actually mean? I think if we say, go to the cross, we say we're going to lay aside every other agenda and put the cross at the center of our faith and at the center of our lives. And what do we mean by the cross? I didn't grow up in a churchy world, and, and some of this language just went right by me. I thought, what are they talking about? What, what's this got to do with the cross, and, and what, what is the significance of this? Well, the cross is the shorthand, the summary concerning the crucifixion of Jesus. And we look at it and we say that what, what appeared to be defeat in his world was a necessary part of God's victory for all of us. Being executed on a cross, you might say under normal circumstances, <laughs> there could be such a thing, uh, to, the, to the Roman, the Greek, Roman, Jewish world that Jesus lived in, this was complete and final defeat. It was the last word. You're out of there. You've been killed, but in Jesus' case, it wasn't. In the cross, in Christ, what this, this statement of crucifixion turns into a statement of final power. The power of the cross is our reconciliation with God. It's a central truth to the Christian faith. It's the central truth that communion calls your attention to. Now, say we're not sitting in the kind of the state of confusion the 12 men were while all this was happening in that room. Uh, uh, we know a whole lot more now, but there's still a great mystery, right? The mystery is still deep. We're still limited. God, in three persons, did what it required to save the human race through the death of Jesus on this cross. 
And we know that this death atones for our sins. But once again, we're into religious vocabulary. Atonement means it clears the way, uh, takes away the destructive power and makes it possible for us once again to be unified with God. The cross opens up uh, the possibility, the way for a healed relationship with God. Now, how that works in God's economy is mostly beyond us. But we can realize that our sins separate us from God, and God himself does what it takes to restore us through forgiveness established through the cross. That's deep stuff. You don't want to speed right past that. In a profound verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Bible says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You could spend a lot of time meditating on that one and contemplating it. How does that work? It's magnificent, but how does it work? So today we have this communion service. I think it's very important for the church to make uh, uh, this a regular event in church life. Obviously, we're in special times, and as Rob said, we haven't done this for a while, but we need to do this regularly. I believe communion refocuses every discussion and returns Jesus to the center, in particular by making us think of the cross. The power of communion, as we understand it here, is not any kind of magical or mystical transformation of the elements and eating and drinking them. The power, as we see it, is in the events they represent and how the Holy Spirit uses this to remind us and to reset the church. So we beg you, come to our communion table with that openness. Come knowledgeably, come carefully, come thoughtfully. There are warnings in the Bible about this. But it's time to sweep other agendas aside, lesser agenda, agenda items, and to refocus. Other stuff gets us off track. Other issues grow bigger than they should be in our minds. And even the good things we do somehow go bad as we step further away from the cross. But communion brings us back to the right place, puts things in the right order, ranked appropriately in the right sequence. You come with, to communion, I think, with the expectation that there's probably something going on that's uh, in the wrong place. But it should be a joyful moment then to put Put things in the right order and remind yourselves of what we're all about here, coming together in the Lord's, the Lord's name. Well, the first communion, uh, as we said, was part of a Jewish Passover feast, and um, heavy things were being processed that night. I mean, it was Jesus' last night on earth, so to speak, and <laughs> he had a lot to tell the people in the room with him about uh, what was going to happen next. Um, there's a heavy atmosphere in the room for the most part, but I don't think when Jesus initiated this ceremony, gave us this ritual, that he intended it to be kind of a, a painful, mournful, morose, extra introspective kind of event in the life of the church. Even in our own tradition, uh, I can speak of, there, there are many communion services that are far too somber for me. Because I don't feel it when I come to communion. Um, I'm not sad I, I, I sense in this ritual, this deep mystery that God has expressed love and forgiveness, and it cheers me up, actually. I remind myself that God sent his son to the world not to condemn it, but to save it, and that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You 
probably know my, my Bible references there. What could I be referring to when I think things get out of place? Well, of course, you refer to your own personal normal sins. But there are things that about us, I don't think they can be, they don't land conveniently in any one category of sin, but things that eat our imaginations, occupy our minds and our time, cause us anger, cause us to worry, uh, that eat our time personally, and they can get into the church. They'll even eat up the life of the church. They're hungry agendas that, that want to consume us. Our sinful inclinations get to us even here at church when we're together, when you think about it. Sometimes the corruption can be hard to see. It entrenches itself. What might have been easily identified at one point as not coming from the Lord, not generated from His Holy Spirit, somehow becomes acceptable and even undiscussable. You're afraid you'll set people off if you talk about it. Well, I want to talk about two passages the one passage talks about a religion of no power. The other talks about the real power of our faith. The one might be a religion, but it's not the religion I want. And uh, it's not really about anything, much of anything spiritual when I think about it. But the other one gives me my focus where the true power lies. It's the religion I want. It's the religion I recommend to you. And it's the religion that I'm asking you to celebrate with us in communion this morning. Well, let's look at the bad news first, this other religion. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says this, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then this verse, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. It's common for Christians reading that passage to think that it's talking about the world outside the church. Well, that could be part of it, part of a, you know, a depressing portrayal of the human race and its deterioration. That could be part of it. But as a matter of fact, when you read this passage in context and read the previous chapter, you realize that this painful report is actually being addressed to us, the believers, characterizing people on the inside, not the outside, the world at large. And the passage is doing more than hinting at corruption in the church you've probably noticed that the world can get into the church. And these verses don't have any boundary that says, oh, that's for all them out there. It doesn't come in the church door where the saints live. But that's not what the passage is addressing. It seems to be addressing us right here in the church and maybe really only us. It's a dangerous thing to read the Bible in context. It's a joke. Lamentably, I see all those, you might say that, <laughs> that dreary list in Timothy in the church at large today, people who profess Christ as Savior. But I think the key is in verse 5, they have a form of godliness but deny its power. 
Certainly there's a religion. It might be a thriving religion with an exciting institution. It might be respectable and grant respectability to its adherents. It, it has a vocabulary. It, it wears the t-shirt. But it's a form of godliness. And its power isn't in God. Its power less rests in human hands. Well, that's the dismal report. Another passage comes to mind, and it involves the cross. And because it focuses me on the cross, then I say communion's going to help me get to this, get back here. The very beginning of his epistle, his letter to the church in Corinth, Paul says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. So in that first passage, we saw those who have a form of religion, but we say deny its power. But in the second, we say, here is where the power lies, where it is. And it's in the cross and in the message of the cross. Reminds me of a very similar verse that starts the letter to the Romans in the Bible. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. In their more immediate context, this spoke loudly. As I said, the cross in the Roman world was not just a painful way to go, it was a shameful way to go. It was embarrassing. But this great crime against God actually has turned around to be God's victory and salvation for us. And the believer in its power is not ashamed to say so. We so easily lose our sense of what God did in Jesus through the cross and the power that is unleashed as that story is completed. It should be rehearsed every week in church so we don't lose sight of it. Jesus died to reconcile us to God. He was buried. He rose on the third day, conquering death. He ascended into heaven and he sends the Holy Spirit to the church. And thus the last days begin and we continue in them until he returns again to judge the earth. That's the basic outline of Christian faith. And the cross is one of the primary constituent parts, one of the elements in the sequence. The event changes the world for all who will receive it. There are other types of historical events. We're around them and part of them at all times. Um, uh, but there's a personal element here that remains in play right up till this morning. It remains in play now, and it poses a question for each one of us individually. Saying Christ died on the cross isn't exactly like just citing an historical event. I, for some reason, the historical event that came to mind as an illustration was that the Battle of Hastings was fought in 1066. It's probably not on everybody, the tip of everybody's tongue, but it's significant, it's significant. Uh, but it's, it's back there somewhere. It, it affects our vocabulary. It's how our vocabulary ended up largely French. But it's an interesting story. But it's all back there somewhere. You don't have to walk around in that truth. You don't, you don't have to know it at all. It's part of who we are, but it's way back there. But the truth about Jesus entails a personal choice for each, us each this morning. It's your decision whether you will step into the story of the cross the cross, the death of Jesus is an event uh, that 
needs to take hold of you personally. God offers it to you, but you are the one who decides to accept it by faith. Well, in the church, we will always deal with the problems of our corrupt nature. It's still very much with us. Uh, we are forgiven. We are in the process of reforming. But I don't think any of us had better claim that we've arrived at some final point of development. It never seems to go well when a Christian or the church declares its own goodness. It, it's an instant exposure to the charge of hypocrisy. But in some ways, that's the easiest understanding the, that we can sort of focus in on and, and um, change as part of a communion service. Because we might sweep these more conventional kinds of problems, uh, types of sins, we could push them under the rug for a while. Uh, it's easy in your own life not simply not to recognize the sin in your own behavior, especially when you're being righteous. Um, we might conveniently leave some things off the list, off our consideration. That's, that's probably one of our, our major corruptions is that we have short lists of what sins are and, and what they aren't. And of course, they're usually the things other people are doing. But the Bible and the Holy Spirit have a way of fixing this in us regularly, and I think communion is, is one of the ways in which those things are corrected. When the cross is at the center, and we remember it regularly and take communion, we have a chance of holding on to the right message and understanding. In particular, we will understand ourselves as forgiven sinners who by God's mercy show mercy, tell the world about his love, uh, explain convincingly, perhaps, how it has restored us and carried us and healed us. The sins listed in Timothy, for example, that were unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, a whole dismal list. Uh, these things emerge when we're far away from the cross, but when we come back to this understanding of ourselves as forgiven, people who in turn forgive and show mercy, well, that's what happens to us when we recalibrate through communion. Let's consider this, I talked about this other category of broader things, the, the level where the cross is set aside and we bring out our other projects, our other agendas. And when these other projects move to the center of the church's focus, they, they I think, bring deep corruption. They're harder to identify, they're harder to correct, but I think they deserve our attention. What projects am I referring to? I can think of no more alarming distractor in our day than politics. As I see it, nothing has detracted from our witness and polluted our own Christian lives more than the way we have approached that involvement. So often we just become another angry voice using the same exaggerations, the same bellicose proclamations as people who don't know Christ. Another factor that's pretty interesting here is the church itself. When we lose sight of the, the real spiritual power that brings us together in the church and realize that's what people hunger for and that's what we're inviting them into, uh, we become just another worldly institution. We'll see people and groups jockeying for power and position. We'll see the empowerment of celebrity leaders who are going to draw in big crowds and call attention to us. We'll begin to think of defeating the alleged enemies who are out to get us. And we'll do the stuff of worldly institutions. We'll use human power to make things thrive as we see it. But what we won't be doing 
is resting on the power of the cross, but rather the powers of human influence and money and prestige and manipulations. The power of God is revealed in the cross, and when we take communion, our attention is drawn back to that. That power didn't fail. It won't fade. And the question for us always when we take communion is, do we believe it? Do we really? It seems to me it's so easy to fall into this, yeah, well, yeah, that's great, and uh, better take some matters into our own hands because we don't know where Jesus is going to be when we need him. But Jesus is here, and we don't have to worry about that. We don't have to play the world's games on the world's terms. The love of Jesus is already offered to us. It can be put in us personally. The agenda for fixing the world is already in play. And we already know our part in it through Jesus. I'm not ever suggesting, of course, that we don't have to do our part, uh, take responsibility for work in the church and uh, be part of society and play our part. But I don't think we're just pasting the name of Jesus on human activity. I think we're inviting people into the power of the cross individually in their own lives. And we're not saying that as a statement of cockeyed piety, but the belief that the power is actually in Christ through the cross. And we will keep things properly ordered, properly ranked. We'll see the sequence. We'll recognize the limitations of our own activities. I believe we can access, grasp the power of God in faith. You know this, it's not cockeyed piety. People have real problems. They face real struggles. We know God doesn't always deliver us from difficult situations, scary situations. But God can always reach into a life in the midst of them. And many of us have the testimony that he somehow sustains us with his presence, even in the hardest times, even when our faith, from our perspective, hangs on by a thread or even less. That's the power we want to touch this morning in communion. I'll invite you to join me. Either you have one of these or you're going to get one. Don't play with it. (laughs) These are tricky. Rob and Doris Ward, special times call for special methods. This is not a good time for a communal communion cup or chalice here. Uh, These things are tricky. Rob and Doris warned me I'd want to practice. I did. I popped the top open. And when you pop the top open, you you can find a little, this is truly a communion wafer. Uh, It'll be on the very top layer. Then the foil layer pulls back and has juice in it, but it's very full. And if you're holding the container tight and squeezing it at all, that juice is going to run all over your fingers. It ran all over my fingers when I practiced, and then I wiped my white face mask with them. It wasn't blood, or at least not, not in reality. So that's what you'll need to do. Pull the first layer back, the cellophane layer, and you'll find a little wafer. And then you pull the foil layer back, and you will find juice. If you're at home, I don't know what you're, uh, what you're doing, but uh, please join us. You're part of us. You'll be part of this communion service. We're united through the Holy Spirit and not, uh, well, you're with us. The Holy Spirit binds us together. We'll take the wafer first and then we'll drink together. We'll have a prayer before each element. This represents the bread. On the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you pray with me for a moment? And then we'll take this element. Lord, help us to recognize in this bread your broken body. May it remind us. May it restore us. May it bring us back to your cross in joy to receive your forgiveness and to feel your power and have your power in our lives. Let's take this together. Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Join me with a prayer. Give us clarity of mind, Lord, to understand what we're doing, what you've done for us. As we Take this cup that represents your blood. Fill our lives with your power. Fill the church with your power. In Christ's name.